Hello, and welcome to the Seek Learning Podcast. I'm Professor Casey Paul Griffiths, a professor of church history and doctrine at Brigham Young University, and I'm also president of the BYU Latter-day Saint Educator Society. Seek Learning is designed to bring you the best in educational research to assist teachers in professional home and church settings. And if you like what you hear in this episode, please subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends, or leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Now, I study educational history. A couple of years ago, I wrote an article on a church school called Murdoch Academy that ran from about 1890 to about 1921. And in researching that, I found out a bunch of interesting things about how education worked a century ago. For instance, um, during the 1899 to 1900 school year, the students' daily regimen was as follows. They woke up at 6 a.m. They ate breakfast. They studied until 8.30. Classes ran until 4 p.m. with a lunch in between. Physical exercise was continued till 7 p.m. Dinner was served during that time. And at 7 p.m., students were expected to be in the room studying until 10 p.m. and no later than 11 p.m. except on Friday and Sunday evenings. Students at Murdoch Academy also lived at the academy, were expected to forage for firewood in their spare time and memorize passages from their textbooks and even could have surprise visits in their dorm rooms uh, from the school faculty and staff. Now, if that's how different education was a century ago, how different might it be a century from now? Our guest today, Richard West, is an expert in educational trends for the future. Richard studies how education is evolving in the 21st century, and he has some great ideas for how teachers will be able to collaborate, work with students, and even increase their credentials in the future. So what might education look like a century from now? That's the topic of today's Seek Learning. In the lives of Latter-day Saints, education is central to their religion and its practice. For members of the church, education is not merely a good idea. It's a commandment. At the David O. McKay School of Education at Brigham Young University, scholars carry out different studies every year in the field of education. In this podcast, we speak with these scholars to find out what they discovered about education and what does it mean for Latter-day Saints. How can these findings be applied in home and gospel settings? Finally, what inspired them to become an educator and how has it affected their lives? Education is the difference between wishing you could help other people and being able to help them. This is the Seek Learning Podcast, presented by the BYU Latter-day Saint Educator Society. Richard West is an associate professor in the Instructional Psychology and Technology Department at BYU. Early on in his career, he was a professional journalist before he received his master's degree from BYU and then transferred to the University of Georgia, receiving degrees in educational psychology and instructional technology. Richard is also a founding co-chair of the BYU Creativity, Innovation, and Design faculty group. You can follow Richard on Twitter at at Richard E. West, or you can see his papers or presentations at richardewest.com. Richard recently sat down with Heather Safarovich from our team to speak about how teachers can be a little bit more innovative in their approach to their own credentials and education. Let's join their conversation. Thank you for being with us today, Richard. Let's dive in. I first heard about open badges and micro-credentials back in 2016 from my former dean, but I don't know that everybody knows what that is. Help us understand it. 
Well, it's a new kind of an idea. And a good way to maybe think about it is we're pretty familiar, I think, in, especially in our culture with the uh, Boy Scout and Girl Scout badges. And it's kind of a similar kind of a thing. Open badges are a way of recognizing achievement or learning or participation in something. But there's a few kind of twists on it that's different from merit badges and also different from the other kinds of ways we've credentialed learning in the past. So they usually represent smaller pieces of learning. So rather than having to go four years for a degree or a diploma, it could be something that could be earned in a much shorter period of time. Um, they are digitally based. And so because they're digital credentials, you can stuff them full as much metadata that you want to. You can put information in there about what you had to do to earn the credential, who you worked with, who looked at your work and gave you feedback, um, what standards it was based on, who's endorsed your work. All of that can be placed inside the credential. So instead of just getting a grade, it's almost like a grade with a letter of recommendation for every piece of, of accomplishment that you have. And um, there's one more thing that's kind of unique about them. Um, I talk about open badges versus just digital badges. Open badges uses a special kind of technology that allow these credentials to then be shared and with any other organization. I've been learning Chinese with a, an app called Hello Chinese, and they have credentials there. They have little badges. But those badges don't transfer to Duolingo or they don't transfer to anything else. They just kind of stay stuck in the Hello Chinese app. And uh, the difference with open badges is you can actually share those so that once you've earned something, you don't lose it when you transfer to a new organization. You can take that credential of your learning with you anywhere you go and then build on it as you, as you keep learning. Well, that's fascinating. Who, who is using these micro-credentials and why are they using them? So there are a lot of different people are using them. We've seen universities uh, incorporate them as part of their core mission of how to educate students. Uh, sometimes they'll be part of courses that you can actually earn these micro-credentials as part of a class. Or sometimes there'll be things that you learn outside of class that the university still values. Things like leadership or service or multicultural awareness. Uh, the kinds of things that we really feel like everyone should know about, but you're not getting it in your coursework specifically. So they'll offer these uh, micro-credentials as ways that you can earn those kind of extracurricularly. We also see them at the K-12 level with um, uh, schools using them. And one, one fun example about the K-12 level is Aurora Public Schools out in Colorado. And I love their little model that they had where they um, wanted their students to have more experiences with the local employers and get kind of integrated into the local work scene and have job opportunities after they graduated. Um, and the employers wanted people that had the skills that they cared about. So they opened up a partnership where the schools talked to local businesses and things and said, you know, what is it that you value? And if we were to offer credentials on that to our students, would you promise them maybe an internship or at least an interview or something like that? And so that then becomes motivating to the students. And the employers loved it because people were learning things that they cared about anyway. This is a really great partnership. Another example is uh, businesses will use micro-credentials, like IBM has, is one of the largest issuers of micro-credentials um, in the country, and they've been just issuing them through their online learning that they provide kind of free, and also to their employees, and they've now opened up a partnership with Northeastern University that some of those credentials that people earn at working at IBM can now count towards academic credit at the university. So I think it's kind of neat to see how you asked who's using them. Well, anybody can use them and they can kind of go across boundaries. Yeah, I like that with that public-private partnership. Well, what differences do you see in the students who earn these 
credentials and open badges. So at the core, learning is learning. So whether you get a degree or whether you get a diploma or whether you get a micro-credential, I don't know if that changes too much who you are, but I think a couple things happen. I think it can be more motivating, like I said. But I think the other thing is I think people who earn these are more aware of the skills that they have and can better communicate those skills to other people. So one of the things, IBM's done research on their badges, and one of the findings that they found is these were really great ways to talk about things in interviews. As people would then interview for jobs, they had things they could talk about. You know, when when the person asks you and says, tell me about a project you worked on where you had to be creative. Oh, yeah, well, I, I earned this creativity badge working on this thing, and let me tell you what I did. And so it becomes a talking point. And also, it becomes things that you can put into your resume and on your online portfolio. And I think it helps students to understand how to talk about their skills and abilities with other people and how to better communicate the things that they know. Yeah, and communication is always so hard, especially when you're in that unequal relationship of being somebody who's interviewing for a job. You know, you're trying to put your best foot forward, but you're always awkward and stuttering and stammering, but uh, that it's very important for potential employees to be able to talk about their skills and to do so in a way that shows accomplishment, that shows that they can do these things. And wouldn't it be helpful if they had some micro-credentials they could show you for various skills and things that they've learned along the way? Exactly. Well, that's, that's fascinating. What innovations do you foresee in the future of micro-credentialing and open badges? And that's an interesting question. I think the future of education, we're going to see people kind of demand that the learning they do anywhere can get recognized. Um, the learning I do at the university, I want to get recognized for it. The learning I do on my own, at home on my computer, should count for something. Uh, the learning I do on the job should count for something. I think we're going to evolve into something that's more akin to a, a comprehensive learner record that tracks all of the learning you have. Um, and it'll, it'll, it'll include grades, it'll include coursework, it'll include all the things we do at the university. I don't think that's going to change. But it'll also include all of your open badges, all of your certificates, all of your trainings completed, all of your this, all of your that. And I think this will all become part of this individual comprehensive record of, of everything you've learned that you, the learner, have control over. And you won't have to pay five bucks to somebody to give you your transcript. You know, you'll own this record of your learning and can... Divide it up as you want to, to show somebody a portion of it or to show them all of it. And, and that you'll be able to have that kind of learner control of, of your learning. I think it will, will be something that we'll see more of. Yeah, that, that sounds very useful and very practical. Well, one of your other specialties has to do with collaboration and education. So tell us a little bit about your research on collaboration. So, yeah, in addition to my work with uh, micro-credentials, I've also been interested um, all of my life in the social aspects of learning. I studied, you know, communities of practice model and, and communities of learning and how the social affects learning. But then I was also at the University of Georgia there with the Torrance Center for Creativity, and I started to take classes on creativity and was fascinated by this idea of how social influence influences not just learning, but things like creativity, and that you can trace a lot of people's creativity down to the social connections that they make and the collaborations that they have. So my dissertation actually was on social creativity and, uh, you know, um, communities of innovation um, and, and what kinds of characteristics exist in these communities that are innovative. Um, and I've continued to do work in that area. And then also in uh, online learning, 
Um, one of the concerns I have is online learning is growing. It's very important. People need online learning because we can't always go to a university in person but uh, or a school, even in the K-12 area. But um, I worry about how isolating that can be. And we've learned about Zoom fatigue, for example, over this last year, and, and people just feeling um, a lot of anxiety and a lot of emotional challenges from not being together a lot and being isolated. So a lot of my work is also in the social aspects of online learning. And how can we promote social connection between the students and the teacher and between each other? And how can we make online learning effective and a little bit less socially isolating? There are probably hundreds of thousands of students who are thanking you for that <laughs> right this very moment. And almost that many teachers as well. Yeah, well, you're exactly right. Because teachers get into teaching because we love students. We love interacting with them. And if you take that away, it becomes a lonely discipline. And so I think we want to have that ability, even if it's online, to be able to connect with each other. Connection is so important because you mentioned this earlier, I think before we started uh, taping, but just the synergistic component that happens when people come together to learn and how that changes the learning outcome. And it becomes such a dynamic environment at that point. Exactly. Um, there is, there's this old African proverb, you know, if you want to go faster, go alone, but if you want to go farther, go together. You know, sometimes we can be more efficient by ourselves, but, um, but we'll get farther if we go together. Uh, it, it'll be a struggle sometimes. We'll have to work with different opinions and different ideas, but what we can create together is, is always more powerful than what we can do by ourselves. I wholeheartedly agree. And I see that when I work at the Education Zion Gallery, whenever I have guest curators, whenever I have more student interns, whenever I have more research assistants or more peer reviews. It's just a, a far better, more mature product at the end. Exactly. Right. Richard has given us a good feel for some of the promising changes that might come to education in the future, like micro-credentials or ways of increasing collaboration. But in the second part of our conversation with him, we want to talk a little bit about how these tools can help us right now. How could something like micro-credentials, for instance, keep teachers hungry to learn new things and acquire new skills? Let's jump back into the conversation. What are some ways you think collaboration could enhance learning within the church? I think sometimes we think that salvation is an individually gained thing, but that's not compatible with our doctrine. We know, for example, that there's at least one person that we have to collaborate with um, to achieve exaltation or salvation, and that's our Savior, of course. And so we know that salvation is a collaborative process between us and the Savior, but I think it extends even beyond that. I think uh, our doctrine about sealing is that we are saved with other people. And that's why we're in wars. That's why we're in stakes, why we're in communities and quorums, is we need that collaboration to help each other. During the pandemic, that's been difficult. We haven't been able to come together as much. Do we need youth activities as often as we do, or is this a burden? But no, I think we do need these things. I think we need to come together because I think the social aspects of our spiritual growth are just as important as the individual. Uh, parts of it. And part of that is because we're all unique individuals and we have different perspectives and we need to share those perspectives with each other because it's from learning from each other that I gain new perspectives on, on myself and on my own personal journey and my own relationship with my Heavenly Father. And so I, I think those collaborations are really important. Yeah, and I think we become stronger with those collaborations. As somebody who has studied collaboration and creativity, 
what do you perceive as being like the ideals in Zion when it comes to collaboration and creativity? Well, I think we know that Heavenly Fathers and, and our Heavenly Parents are quite a creative group of people. They've created quite a few things in this world, right? Um, and so if we're aspiring to be like them, then we need to become creative as well. And that may seem overwhelming, and that's great. We have an eternity to get there. But creativity is part of our divine potential. It is part of our DNA. I don't believe it's something that is held by only the elect few. This is something that's part of all of us, and we can foster this. And I think that's good, because we need to become divine creators like they are. Um, and I think, you know, we know that they created the worlds as a council. This was a, you know, the gods created it, and it was good. And I think if we want to be able to have really the best kinds of creations as well, it's things that we need to work together at. And um, if we're building up the church or our wards, that's something that also, as we work together, we can create something better than we can by ourselves. And we can create within our spheres of influence, within the wards, within our families, within our neighborhoods as well. Right. So if we really want to draw close to, to God or to Christ, we really need to start creating and collaborating. One of the four aims of a BYU education is lifelong learning. What role do you see for micro-credentialing among church members, both domestically and internationally? I actually think lifelong learning is exactly the kind of problem that micro-credentialing can help with. We know that lifelong learning is necessary. We know that we have to do it. And so you have to learn things all the time so that you can stay relevant in society. But that's hard to do, right? You have a family, you have a career, you have a job. Are you just going to leave it behind and go back to school for four years? Sometimes we can do that, but it's hard. It's much more realistic to be able to take um, snippets of time, you know, a couple months here, or maybe in the evenings here, or maybe this summer I'll work on this. And so micro-credentials, representing those smaller bits of learning, I think can be really helpful in, in allowing people to learn specific things that they need for their careers, places where they need to grow, and then get credentialed and recognized for it, and then being able to just build upon that credential and maybe one example of how this could work, I, I did a sabbatical in the Netherlands, actually, and I was talking to um, a fellow from the uh, business school of Rotterdam, and they had an interesting idea where they were creating these, these micro-credentials that would represent about a semester's worth of work, and then they were selling them to um, organizations, businesses, and saying, what is it that you want your employees to learn how to do? Okay, great. If we create a semester's worth of work and have a micro-credential associated with it, how many of your employees will you pay to come to our course? And, oh, wow, if you're going to do that on that skill that I want them all to have, I'll pay for all of them to come. You know? so, the, so this was a beneficial thing for the university again, but once again, beneficial for the, for the organization as well. And this would represent small bits of learning. And then they were, were working towards a model where then if you did enough of these smaller credentials, you could then come back to Rotterdam and finish it off and get your master's degree. But it wouldn't be then a big investment at that point because you'll be already a lot of the way there because you've been working on it as part of your workplace learning kind of along the way. How efficient is that? That sounds amazing. And as you describe that, I think, well, of course, but Denmark, but what about Ghana? What about um, Guatemala? What about Thailand? And that those could be game changers for church members in those countries if they were to have a lot of micro-credentials or open badges, they would be very employable. Well, we're seeing a similar kind of an idea with BYU Pathway. It's not exactly the same thing, but they're uh, going with a certificate first kind of model. Earn a certificate, then a degree. And sometimes one certificate is enough to significantly improve your life. 
Um, and so that's a great blessing to those people. Yeah, it can, it can mean that all the difference for that family for generations to come. For the last part of our conversation with Richard West, we always like to take a little time to talk to our subject about his or her background as an educator. One of the wonderful things about Richard is this intense desire he has to learn new things. If part of the aim of education is to become lifelong learners, how do we cultivate that within ourselves and within others? Richard can give us a few tips along the way. Why did you choose to become an educator, and how has it helped build your faith? I, I taught seminary for a couple of years, and I loved that. And I realized what I loved about it was the relationship with the students. And so I knew at that point that I wanted to be a teacher because I wanted those relationships with the students. And that's still something that I really value. Um, sometimes students worry, I think, that, you know, oh, professor, you're really busy. Do you have time to meet with me? And the answer is yes, because you're the reason I'm here. I'm here because I want to meet with you and all your peers as well. And I wish I had even more time to do so. But um, I love those relationships with the students. And um, in fact, uh, those that have worked on with their thesis or their dissertation with me, I, I take their picture of them and their family and stick it up on my wall. And, and I, I'll never forget those, those people. And so I, I really am grateful for those relationships. And that's why I got into teaching. Um, as far as what it does for my, my faith, I believe that, you know, like we've learned just recently, in Come Follow Me and in, in the Doctrine and Covenants, you learn by study and by faith. And I think those just go together. And the more I learn and the more I grow in, in what I understand about the world and about psychology and about humans, uh, the more I believe in a divine group of parents that helped create us. Um, I think sometimes there's a concern that the more educated you get, you might think your way out of the church, but I have not found that to be the case. And I think there's some research to support that, at least within the LDS community, that doesn't tend to be true. Um, that education actually brings us closer to our heavenly parents and um, makes us more aware of the miracles around us. And, and I find that um, my reason that I learn as a researcher very much supports what I understand by faith. And both of them, to me, help me understand my heavenly parents. One of the questions that we have in a reflection room in the gallery is, why does the Lord want me to gain an education? And that could be a formal education. It could just be learning. Uh, in and of itself. But I think time and time again, I see the answers that the students put on the board as being, it stretches me and it helps me see things from different perspectives. And that's what education does. It, it makes us grow. Right. Education is growing. I mean, at, at a very literal definition, it's growing and, and developing in a new way. And we're a doctrine and a church of eternal growth. We're supposed, that's supposed to never happen. So we talk about lifelong learning. How about eternal learning? Um, this is never going to end, right? Because we like it, right? We like, um, it's, you know, sometimes it's hard, of course. We may not like taking a test all the time, but we like learning. I think that's very natural, that we, we enjoy getting better at things, and, and that's, a, that's a very rewarding thing. Well, and I think of every time I learn something new, what do I want to do? I want to share it with somebody. I don't want to just keep it to myself. I have to tell somebody, oh, did you know this? Right. That's a very interesting thing about uh, education. Teaching is very much about sharing. And it's one of those things where the more you share it, it doesn't diminish the amount that you have. In fact, if anything, it probably grows. So you're either growing or you're not. And, um, and you're either becoming something or you're becoming something different. And so choose carefully what it is you want to become. And then education is part of that. Be purposeful. And it doesn't have to be purposeful going to a university necessarily all the time. It could be, you know, like we're doing with the youth program. What are my goals this year for my 
physical growth and my mental growth and my emotional growth. But we should be always concerned about our growing and our developing into something new. Um, I love the quote from Alvin Toffler. He, he was a visionary for a long time. And, and back in the 1980s, like 1980 actually, predicted things like the internet and personal computers and some of the things that we have nowadays. But he said, the illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read and write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn, and then learn again. And that's really where we're at. He, he predicted it exactly. Um, it matters less what we actually learn, but our, it's more can we learn and unlearn and relearn and keep going and keep going from, from learning to learning to learning until we reach, you know, eventually our destination. Well, and if we don't have that skill set, we can't reach that destination. Just fundamental to our, our very being, I believe. Yeah. Well, thank you, Rick, for such an engaging discussion today. This was fabulous. Well, thank you for having me. Our thanks to Richard West and Heather Seferovich for their time today. The Seek Learning Podcast is produced by the BYU Latter-day Saint Educator Society in cooperation with the McKay School of Education. I'm Casey Paul Griffiths, and I serve with Michael Leonard as the executive producers of the podcast. We also receive assistance from Joe Backman, David Boren, Betsy Ecton, and Heather Seferovich. Editing and production for this episode was carried out by our wonderful students at the McKay School with our theme and music composed by Alistair Schwerman. Lisa Leonard also lends assistance to the podcast, and we're thankful for her. Thank you for listening. And if you like what you heard, you can help us grow the podcast by subscribing or writing a review wherever you receive your podcasts, or give the Society a like or comment on Facebook or Instagram. The Latter-day Saint Educator Society also holds an annual conference every June to provide inspiration and information for those of you out there in the field. We hope you'll join us this June, and you can find more information on our webpage, just Google Seek Learning Podcast. Until next time, friends, this has been Seek Learning.